and welcome to Rising. Robbie, I see you're a little surprised there that I am opening the wow. segment today. Wow. Do you the see show. the words were about to come out of my mouth? <laughs> I feel like I have a ventriloquist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm not going to throw you off too much. We just thought we'd try something different this morning. I, I love it. All about trying new things. <laughs> What's on the docket for us today, Robbie? Well, Brianna, I would be happy to tell you. The Biden administration <laughs> launched another round of airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen. Per the U.S. military, the strike successfully destroyed rebel military sites used in the ongoing blockade of the Red Sea. Now, yesterday, President Biden redesignated the Houthis as a terrorist group after removing them from the list less than a month after taking office. Now, in a State Department release, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that the move came in recognition of the dire humanitarian situation in Yemen. He added, quote, these attacks against international shipping have endangered mar mariners, disrupted the free flow of commerce, and interfered with navigational rights and freedoms. Meanwhile, displaced Palestinians sheltering at the largest remaining hospital left in southern Gaza were forced to evacuate overnight as intense fighting nearby threatened the hospital. This video verified by the New York Times shows families fleeing amidst echoes of heavy gunfire. ABC News details mounting frustrations between President Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu. According to multiple senior administration officials, the growing divide between Bibi and Biden on Israel's current handling of the conflict Plus, its plans for post-war Gaza has become more pronounced since Secretary of State Blinken's visit to Israel. The Biden administration's tightrope walk became even clearer during Blinken's visit to Davos this week. Let's watch. The choice is there. And ultimately, this is about choices. Um, what kind of society do we want to live in? What kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of region do we want to live in? We talk a lot as well today about regionalization. Mm -hmm. There's a profound opportunity for regionalization in the Middle East, in the greater Middle East, that we have not had before. Uh, the challenge is realizing it. Does Israel have the prime minister for that opportunity? Look, these are decisions for, uh, for Israelis to make. This is a, a profound decision for the country as, whole, as a whole to make. Blinken's feet were put to the fire again during this next viral moment. Let's watch. One of the things you hear so often from people, given the high civilian casualties in Gaza, is does the United States, do Jewish lives matter more than Palestinian and Muslim lives, and Muslim, Palestinian Christian lives, uh, given the incredible asymmetry uh, in casualties? And I've been asked that. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. No. Period. Um. For me, I think for so many of us, um, what we're seeing every single day in Gaza uh, is gut-wrenching. You know, it's, it's yeah. interesting to hear um, him say, he asked, is Netanyahu the right man for this job? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there are serious issues that some people have with Netanyahu, even from, from the standpoint of, you know, totally disabling Hamas and the political opposition to the state of Israel among the Palestinians, given that there are questions about Netanyahu's own support um, Im implicitly propping up Hamas as a buffer against other Palestinian groups. So, you know, you could be a total hardliner on Israel uh, or in support of Israel and still have those questions. But he says there, you know, that's, uh, that's an issue for Israel to decide. I think it's the blank check nature Correct. of it, that uh, Americans being asked, we're going to pay for this, for the Israeli war effort in Gaza. We now know, uh, we knew it already, but it's making the U.S. less safe. It's 
led indirectly to attacks on U.S. vessels in the Red Sea. Um, it's raised tensions between our government and Iran and so many other Arab countries. And then to say—so so obviously, Blinken and Biden are making the calculation, well, it's all worth it, because we want to support Israel. But then we, ha we're, we can have no say over how it's used or what Israel's policy will be or what it's, how its government should, should be comprised. That seems so unfair from right. an American first standpoint. So first of all, America has not had any shyness about doing a coup and toppling governments and, and changing leaders all over the world, that it's suddenly acting bashful uh, about that prospect or the implications of that and, the, and built into the question there is kind of laughable. Of course, I don't support that kind of behavior, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty. I think you're absolutely right. The question isn't whether the U U.S. gets an opportunity to choose who leads Israel. The point is whether or not the U.S. has a in its own capacity as an independent country can bring an end to this conflict largely because without our aid, both military and broader financial aid, Israel would not be able to conduct this war. Um, specifically, uh, I saw uh, Jeremy Scahill over at The Intercept wrote a whole long piece about this, and he tweeted yesterday in response to uh, a U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, tweet about how huma the humanitarian cause is so important and how tough things are for people in Gaza. He replied, what is remarkable here is that there appears to be no attachment to the the reality that it is the U.S. that has armed Israel, prevented a ceasefire but with these U.N. vetoes, and served as Israel's chief political and diplomatic protector throughout the indiscriminate bombing and invasion of Gaza. So for Blinken to be asked, is, do Palestinian lives matter as much as uh, Israeli lives, and to say, well, no, they don't, of course it's so sad that these Palestinian lives are being killed, and to, to not then acknowledge the extent to which they're literally being killed with American bombs and with American funding and with American agency, that is a huge uh, effort to gaslight right. the American people. And without any American input and oversight. That's what—that seems to be the entire policy of the Biden administration. We're going to—you know, in terms of—when when he decided to make nice with Saudi Arabia, after condemning Saudi Arabia while he was running for president, Biden did. Right. Does the fist bump with, uh, with the sheik. Um, Okay, but then when we have our own oil crisis, they don't they don't open up, uh, they don't let the oil flow. Like, what are we getting out of this diplomacy? Well, I mean, what do we like? I want I want to actually have a leadership yeah. that puts America first, that use that either zealously guards the taxpayers' money or at least spends it in a way that is productive to our own interests and our own policies. What are we getting out of this? What seems like an entirely one-sided relationship? It's with also Israel? important to note that what is Israel getting out of this? Netanyahu is largely understood to be chasing this conflict and really benefiting politically from this conflict as someone who is facing really significant legal um, woes in Israel at this time. He's in a weirdly similar situation to Trump, where his status as <clears throat> prime minister helps to insulate him against some of the culpability for the legal charges that he's facing. And moreover, here's what's really perverse about Blinken's framing here, and some of the broader framing that you, you're seeing really pushed in the mainstream media that says, uh, Biden is trying to talk to Bibi, but Bibi is uh, intractable. Uh, Biden really wishes this weren't happening. He's concerned about the humanitarian effects in, in Gaza, but gosh, there's nothing he can do about it. That really flies in the face, one, of the fact that obviously we're funding this war and cutting off funding could bring an end almost immediately to the—not just this immediate conflict in Gaza, but the escalation we're seeing in the region. And two, there has been an admission from Anthony Blinken that the excuse that's given for why this wildly disproportionate um, 
siege has to continue. Again, over 24,000 Palestinians killed after 1,200 uh, 1, uh, uh, Israelis were killed on October 7th, is that we have to defeat Hamas. Here's what Blinken told Netanyahu, according to NBC News, reporting from NBC News, about that fight against Hamas. He said, ultimately, there is no military solution to Hamas, according to the officials, and that the Israeli leader needs to recognize that, that or history will repeat itself and violence will continue. But the officials say Netanyahu was unmoved. Well, if our own government is taking the position that there's nothing about this conflict that's geared toward actually meeting Israel's stated goal of ending Hamas, then at a certain point, you are acknowledging that the the bombs that are being dropped on Gaza, the white phosphorus that is being bombed on, dropped on Gaza, the hospitals that are being bombed, the universities that are being demolished with set charges. This is not warfare. Mm -hmm. This is charges being set in universities, soldiers walking away and exploding them are geared towards something else. And when you're looking at the destruction, systematic destruction of infrastructure in Gaza, what it looks like is an intent to prevent any Palestinians from really returning and living there, destroying all your cultural institutions, your religious institutions, your libraries, your um, uh, government buildings, your universities. And that is why there is this argument that's being made that this really isn't about Hamas, that this is about wow. ethnic cleansing all right. uh, and genocide. I don't. I don't quite see it that way. They're at war with Hamas. They were attacked by Hamas, and Hamas has not surrendered, and they're engaged in total war to defeat them, and it, which involves and ha is involving um, collective punishment, which is well, a war crime. A okay, yeah. Look, I don't. I we disagree. Obviously, that's fine. I don't have a problem necessarily with them pursuing the goal of totally eliminating Hamas. Even and if that goal is not achievable, until. By their well, own admission? To, no, by our, well, that's what we said. I, we don't have. You, Blinken said that. Yes. Well, I. We don't have to support it or aid them in what we think is an ultimately futile effort that's right. costing us money and making us less safe. They want to pursue total war against a, uh, an organization, a terrorist group that attacked them, that has not surrendered. That's their business, and they can pursue that if they want. We don't have to be there to help to to endlessly support it. I, I wouldn't support it at all, every step of the way. And to block them from being held accountable in front of international tribunals that are trying to weigh in on this question of whether or not they are, in fact, violating international law uh, and committing genocide. Yeah, I mean, so does Russia. So does China. We don't. You know, I don't. I don't love the idea of Israel being uniquely and only held up. It's not for uniquely its and only held up. Every. But what's unique about Israel is that it is not held up for these kinds of crimes the way the other parts of the world are. The U.S. isn't throwing itself on the grenade and vetoing charges against Russia or China for their war crimes. Now they have more power on, on the national. The right. They're Council, vetoing, and them. they can do it for they themselves. Are vetoing them. But this is about America's actions because that's the country we live in, and that's the the audience that we're speaking to. Whether or not. If America is treating Israel differently and protecting it from the same kind of judgments that the international community, legal community, um, makes about the rest of the world on a regular basis. Is it, is it only the global south? Is it only certain kinds of countries that have to be um, held accountable to international law? That's the question uh, right now that's being really uh, adjudicated in front of the ICJ. We'll have more follow-ups on that and more. Stick around. Robbie is going to tell you what's on his radar coming up next. Robbie, what's on your radar today? 
So the World Economic Forum's annual meeting is underway in Davos, Switzerland. Now, last year, disinformation stole the spotlight and was featured as a key problem for global elites to address. This year, the WEF has upped the ante, releasing a report that lists misinformation and disinformation as the number one short-term risk facing the world, beating out interstate armed conflict, climate change, and lack of economic opportunity. Societal polarization, which is closely linked to misinfo disinfo, came in third. Now, one of the first events at this year's meeting was a panel discussion called Liberating Science, which largely focused on disinformation as it relates to the climate change agenda. Now, a few short clips from the session went viral on social media. Ex-users took particular note of comments made by two panelists, Naomi Oreskes, a historian of science at Harvard, and Luciana Vaccaro, a Swiss scientist, who both objected to the increased toxicity of the site since Elon Musk took over. Vaccaro said that a fundamental issue with X was, quote, the policy of the owner, which is problematic. Let's watch. For a long time, I was on Twitter. Um, and now it's become such a toxic place that I've concluded it's not a worthwhile place to spend time. And as you said, it is exhausting. So you do have to pick and choose. And you have to think about where the places where you can get your message across. I am trying to figure out, I mean, I have given up on X, what a scary name that even is, right? <laughs> um, and I don't know what the alternative is right now. Of course, on X, now there is also the, the policy of the, the, of the owner that is problematic. Now, one can certainly find fault with the various ways in which Musk is running the site, though Vaccaro seemed to me to be criticizing his stated commitment to allowing more freedom of expression on the platform. Short video clips can be misleading, however. Thankfully, the World Economic Forum records nearly all of its events and panel discussions. And so last night, I went into their website, I tracked it down, and I found the full discussion, and I watched it. And here are a few impressions I formed. First, the participants frequently described science as something approaching a catechism. They were broadly concerned about declining trust in scientific institutions and expressed hope that scientists would train themselves to become better communicators of what is and is not scientific truth. One of the panelists, Carlos Afonso Nobre, a researcher at the University of Sao Paulo, was positively apoplectic about the phenomenon of populist backlash against expertise and elitism around the world. He said, quote, why is populism increasing? I don't understand. They are all anti-science. Why in democracies are we electing anti-science politicians? And he was talking about populists on the right and the left. He said that specifically. Now, the panelists were totally unable to answer that question he posed, why is this happening, offering unconvincing explanations, such as misinformation is easier to obtain than true information, technology makes everything more complicated, the news spreads too fast in today's world, yada, 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 all of those excuses we hear over and over again. Harvard's Oreskes, who chimed in more frequently than the other panelists, correctly noted that distrust of expertise is hardly a new development, but said that the pandemic had exacerbated it. Quote, in the last 10 to 20 years, she said, there's been a deliberate attempt to inflame the public against experts. We definitely saw this during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, at no point during the hour-long discussion did any of the panel experts ever explore the idea that perhaps some of the backlash against the science stemmed from pandemic-era policy mistakes made by governments at the behest of health advisors. They correctly noted that scientists are only human and must be allowed to propose ideas, then later correct their theories based on new information, but they utterly failed to grapple with the lived experience of skeptics during the COVID pandemic. People who disagreed with the underlying science, whether math, 
masks, locked down school closures and vaccination, worked to substantially reduce the spread of the virus, for instance, or even people who merely disputed the policy implications of that science, like whether mandating masks, lockdowns, schools closures, and vaccines was justified or were trade-offs. They were accused of spreading misinformation and in some cases, many cases, barred from speaking about it on social media. At every turn, the loudest voices calling for more suppression of dissent relating to COVID-19 were government health advisors and their allies in the media and at nonprofit organizations purporting to specialize in fighting misinfo and disinfo. In the U.S., this included numerous government agencies that worked in tandem to force censorship on social media companies, as well as purported experts who demonized legitimate lines of inquiry, including whether COVID-19 could have emerged from a lab as racist conspiracy theories. That's what the New York Times lead coronavirus reporter said. The anti-science backlash is not a backlash against the obvious truth that the consensus on specific questions evolved over the course of the pandemic. For instance, I don't think we should find fault with scientists who recommended cloth masks based on available evidence, and then later admitted that cloth masks were, quote, little more than facial decorations. But we should be allowed to express consternation that the choice to wear a mask or not was frequently overridden by government actors at the behest of public health officials. And we should be outraged that the anti-misinformation crowd actively tried to prohibit scrutiny of these policies. During her remarks, panelist Vaccaro was correct in pointing out that science is not democratic. At the end, there is one truth, she said. The scientists don't vote. That is, of course, true. But in a democracy, the people do, in fact, vote on what the government is supposed to do with the information provided by the scientists. Too many members of Team Science overreached by trying to control the policy and the messaging, even when they were wrong. So I, you know, I watched this entire panel. Um, you know, these are smart people making interesting observations about about the trajectory of the political reality ac across the globe, not just in the U.S., in Europe, and other places. This populist backlash, and they had very little explanation for why. They, over and over again, like scientists need to be better communicators. We make things too confusing for everyone. But there was just—I I found it so telling that there was no acknowledgment. And it was the same case last year when they did this kind of similar panel with Brian Stelter leading it about how no, no one is saying—or they shouldn't be saying. I'm sure some people are saying. I'm not saying scientists can never make mistakes. Or if they change their mind—they have a theory doesn't work, they change their mind, then we shouldn't condemn them. I'm not saying that. But they, they did stigmatize—or their allies in the media stigmatized people— who were skeptical of what they said, and now they look very foolish when they change their mind. Yeah, I think the, the real drilling down to the core of it here is not that people's concerns about um, whether Twitter is, in fact, a free speech platform are legitimate. I think those are very legitimate concerns. People like myself, who were critical of Twitter from the left, continue to be critical of it under Elon Musk. Um, given that we've seen so many instances of censorship, whether it was the Elon Jets fiasco, whether it's um, something I mentioned in my radar yesterday, where it's putting a warning on major Israeli newspaper outlet Ynet's reporting about the Hannibal Doctrine, um, whether it's um, reporting that uh, 
Musk has acceded to uh, like 88% of all uh, takedown requests since he took over Twitter as compared to 50% in their earlier days. I think all of those are very legitimate concerns. And I'd like to know what extent of the criticism of X made on that panel was about those kinds of things. But I also really take your point that I think the confusion that they articulate is about being completely unwilling to admit that sometimes the experts got it wrong. And I don't think—I I agree with you. The, the, the crime is not getting it wrong. The crime is gaslighting the public that when they see these the flip-flopping opinions and the flip-flopping advice that you're getting out from of the experts, that it's rational and reasonable to want to do your own research or to reserve judgment or to maybe hang back a little bit before um, taking some advised uh, medical direction if you can do so safely, you know, if you're not— for example, if you're someone like myself who lived alone during COVID and didn't need necessarily to hop back into the public and, and immediately be first in line for some of the recommended medical interventions, that's the problem. And I do think that people are still afraid that admitting that they were wrong means that they don't have any more authority to weigh in from a scientific perspective. And they need to get over that, especially someone who's a history of science professor. I, I was a history of science major at Harvard, and the, so much of what we learned about is the fall fallibility of science. She should know better. Right, exactly. Over time, I mean, they were you know, they were leeching people to make people better until the 20th century, and and we've you know we've caught these people. We played that video the other day of Fauci saying, you know, what I never put my my thumb on the scale, lab leak versus right. natural uh, origins. I, I never preferred it one way. And then then you can play uh, you know 20 clips of right. him saying I substantially favor one or the other. And again, that's fine. He can change his mind, but they did encourage social media companies and, and, and you know, independent uh, people who had some expertise who disagreed, they shut them out right. of public life to the best of their abilities. And yeah. that is what we're really upset about. I, I would say, though, that that, is, that feels so explicitly political. Fauci was a political figure, yeah. not a kind of scientist sitting in a lab just pontificating about what he thinks is right based on scientific judgment. And again, I do think it would help these panelists to disaggregate someone like Fauci, who's not just making mistakes, but increasingly it looks like was making decisions based on a desired political outcome, yes. not the science, to say, well, that wasn't science. Don't blame science. Fauci was wrong, not because, uh, you, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't protect Fauci with trust the science. It wasn't the science that messed up. It was that Fauci knowing that there was a diversity of opinion about things, knowing right. that there was credibility to say lab leak, chose to push a different narrative to, to advance what, for some reason, became a liberal um, policy agenda to deny well, lab leak. Possibly to shield himself and, and the people who agree with sure. his, but from, from oversight An on institutional, the funding Protecting a kind of institutional, right. yeah. institutionalist perspective, yeah. Well, if you liked this uh, radar, I just wanted to let you know that I am launching a new newsletter for Reason. Um, you can go follow, go to my Twitter page. I just have a tweet up about it. You can subscribe down there. It'll be um, a lot of my radars, a lot of the same things I like to talk about on the show. Um, maybe some additional TV and video game and Dungeons and Dragons recommendations. I know some people in the audience appreciate that. I see it in the comments. Thank you for watching. Please subscribe if you feel like it, and we'll have more Rising right after this. A possible harbinger of things to come in 2024 as a special election in Florida flipped a state house seat from Republican to Democrat in what news outlets were calling an earthquake victory. In this close race, Democrat Tom Keene beat out Republican Erica Booth 11,390 votes to 10,800 votes to win the seat. The district has seen a massive shift in political allegiances over the past few years, first going for Biden by five points in 2020, 
then shifting decisively to DeSantis in 2022 by 11 points. Meanwhile, in general election news, former President Trump continues to lead President Biden nationally. A new poll by Harris X has Trump up four points over his opponent, his likely opponent, I should say. When outsider candidates like RFK Jr. and Cornell West are factored in, that lead shrinks to only three points. Notably, the poll has RFK Jr. at around 12 percent support. So I saw people talking about this result, and this is another one of those cases where, you know, the polling indicates very favorable conditions for Republicans. There's a lot of reason to think 2024 could be very favorable for Republicans. Trump way ahead of Biden in swing state polling. You know, Biden having so many issues, the economy, the Middle East, et cetera. Um, even many Democrats would prefer another candidate. Many independent voters think he's, just, he's too old. He is much older than he was last time he ran. All of those indicators trending well for Republicans. But when, it come, when push comes to shove, when you actually hold votes somewhere, there's some resilience to the Democratic Party under Biden. That was true in the 2022 midterms. It was really true in the 2022 midterms, where, despite very favorable conditions, you had um, the, the Senate remain in Democratic hands, the House um, the Republicans taking the House by um, not as clean a margin as might have been expected. And then the, you know, the smaller number of races we had in 2023 was much the same. And here's, here's a district that went for Biden, then was looking solidly red for DeSantis, now back to Democrats, showing that Maybe is it just all vibes? Is it when you know when it comes well, no. to it, there Biden uh, Biden prevails? So I do think that abortion still looms large in the public's mind, collective mind's eye. I mean, I think that radicalism from parts of the Republican Party on certain really important issues like abortion are going to help Democrats, especially in local races where they're not being bogged down by negative perceptions of Joe Biden. We see. I, I saw a report, I think it was about Michigan, that showed how much more popular Gretchen Whitmer is, how much more popular a generic Democrat is in the state than Joe Biden. Joe Biden specifically is hurting, especially in Michigan, uh, because of the large Arab American population there and their criticism of how he's conducting um, the uh, uh, siege on Gaza. But generally speaking, Biden has gone from being a neutral Democrat that benefited from not having a lot of baggage, and you could just slot it and say he'll check all of the Democratic boxes, to being someone who has managed in just the last, I'd say, year or so, the, the tail end of his administration, really anger a lot of core constituencies. Remember, it was just at the end of last year, that after years of not having to pay their student debts, Biden made the choice to turn those student debt payments back on. This is not a conversation about whether the Supreme Court is ultimately responsible for overturning the student debt policy. This was Biden's choice to end Donald Trump's student debt moratorium that had been going on since 2020. He chose to do that right after midterms in a move that many people felt was a kind of a bait and switch, inducing young people to the polls, inducing not so young people to the polls, as you know, it's not just the kids with student debt these days, and then saying, actually, I'm going to negotiate away this one lingering COVID era benefit that you are benefiting from in order to um, benefit me in my negotiations over the debt ceiling, I believe it was at the time. All of those things are adding up. And of course, Gaza looms large. And I think the central question that Democrats are going to have to answer as they head into uh, this year, this election year, is what whether they think that people's concerns about having a national abortion ban or whatever it's going to be outweigh their 
moral commitment to opposing the slaughter of 24,000 people in Palestine, or what they feel like is a real thumbing of the nose at them and their economic priorities over student debt, the PRO Act, not getting a $15 minimum wage, or any of the other milquetoast promises, honestly, right. very milquetoast, moderate, populist uh, promises that Joe Biden has reneged on. Right. Obviously, I don't support any of those policies, but I'm not a Democrat. I understand that they are important to Democrats, and it does, I, I mean, I agree, increasingly, it looks like if you are a Democrat, you're looking at Joe Biden like, what did I actually get out of this? And the whole—I mean, but their strategy is just to scare people with—but it's Trump. Remember? He says crazy things. You can't let him be president again. Of course, the, the media is not even putting him on TV, so people are forgetting what they disliked yes. about Trump in the first place, which I think is a, a problem they have to grapple with. Um, on that note, uh, CNN has decided to cancel its GOP primary debate after just one candidate said that he would join. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis agreed to take the stage, but third-place Iowa finisher Nikki Haley refused unless Trump participated, which, shocker, he would not. In a post on X, Haley wrote, We've had five great debates in this campaign. Unfortunately, Donald Trump has ducked all of them. He has nowhere left to hide. The next debate I will I do will either be with Donald Trump or with Joe Biden. I look forward to it. So it looks like that's the end of the debates. Do you think this is a savvy move on Nikki Haley's part? Because it does seem like, unlike Vivek Ramaswamy, she really benefited from her debate performances. Her polls went up, and she was taken more seriously as people saw more of her. You know, is she giving up on an opportunity to continue to gain on Ron DeSantis, or is she basically saying, hey, it's looking pretty good for me in New Hampshire, why rock the boat? I mean, I think it's that, and also because I think she maybe now is, you've sold me on this, I think she's running for second place, I think mm. she's running for VP. Um, and that just involves destroying DeSantis at this part. So she's already way ahead of him um, in New Hampshire. Why even give him the opportunity to maybe get some, I mean, it's unlikely, but get some momentum going? Um, she wants to, I think, I think at this point she's comfortable staying where she is, um, making a, a putting in a good showing in New Hampshire and maybe other places, and then um, expecting to be the VP. I think that's yeah. looking increasingly likely. To I me. mean, look, it could obviously be someone who is not running for office that ultimately gets the VP. That's nod. what I expected. I fully expected that six months ago. I thought Trump was going to pick um, some, maybe a governor he gets along with. Um, Possibly a Tim Scott-type person. Um, Christy Nome seemed to have some momentum right. among the base, but but if it I were if it were somebody that were running, the only person conceivably that is left is Nikki Haley. I, I have a hard time thinking that Donald Trump is going to extend the olive branch to Meatball Don. It's not going to happen. You know, not Vivek Ramaswamy is a cute diversion, but I don't see what he really gains for Donald Trump on the ticket. He doesn't fulfill a slot like uh, Mike Pence and the Evangelicals or Nikki Haley with this kind of more moderate approach on important issues like abortion and, and frankly, diversity on the ticket, which uh, Republicans will criticize and influence uh, the emphasis on when Democrats do it, but rush to do the exact same thing. They had one of the most diverse—the the RNC in 2020 was more diverse than the DNC, and, of course, they regularly tout their first— uh, Bush twos, cabinet appointments, all of those kinds of things, as much as uh, Democrats yeah. do. One last point about Tom Keene. I do think sometimes we cover these races a little bit too horse racy without looking at what the candidates themselves are actually emphasizing. And we've seen in many unexpected election results over time, like, for example, Donica Rowan becoming the first uh, trans uh, state, I think it was a state uh, House or Senate in, in Virginia, Virginia yeah. um, back in the, I think it was 2018. 
people were surprised by that, but if you look at how she ran, she was emphasizing potholes in the roads, these really basic infrastructural issues, and people said, hey, she's from this community, she understands, I get it, and some of the cultural stuff just really wasn't a part of that race. I'm looking at Tom Keen's website, and I'm immediately seeing the top video being about reproductive freedom in Florida. I think that, again, is really going to drive people out to the polls. And also, talking about uh, the big de developers, uh, housing costs, corporate landlords, and housing is such a top, top issue for Americans right now. I've seen um, RFK Jr. hitting that note, saying, hey, Republicans and Democrats, Biden and Trump, housing has gotten worse under both of those presidencies, and nobody is talking about it, and nobody's doing anything about that. And I wouldn't be surprised if that particular issue resonated a lot with Florida voters as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, it sounds like uh, the opponent um, uh, avoided media interviews but campaigned with slogans that include free and fair elections and uh, I think was very perceived as being very close to Donald Trump on the elections issue, which mm. just continues to be a loser mm -hmm. for Republicans in race after race after race. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. More rising right after this. Damning new audio from the 911 call made by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's staff seems to indicate there was indeed an attempt to cover up Austin's sudden New Year's Day hospitalization. The Daily Beast acquired the 911 tapes. Let's listen. Can I, can I ask, like, can the ambulance not show up with lights and sirens? Um, we're trying to mm -hmm. remain a, a little subtle. Now, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center officials confirmed the secretary was suffering from nausea with severe abdominal, hip, and leg pain when he arrived at the hospital. As a reminder, the White House was completely taken by surprise about Austin's hospitalization, though they attempted to allay fears about who was in charge while he was, in fact, incapacitated. Here's John Kirby as the story first broke. Does the president believe that there ought to be any consequences for any DOD officials who knew about the condition of Secretary Austin but did not report that information? That's going to be up to that's going to be up to Pentagon leadership to decide. Well, what does the president believe? I mean, he's the commander. The president SG. believes that Secretary Austin should get the appropriate care that he needs to get better, so he can get back at work at the Pentagon. He believes we ought to learn from this. Uh, both in terms of notification and about transparency to the American people, um, and uh, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna do what we have to do. As uh, Kareem said, we're also gonna take steps here at the White House to make sure that we have a good tight alignment across the interagency about notification procedures on delegation of authorities. Secretary Austin has been released from Walter Reed. He spent two weeks there before leaving this past Monday. In a statement released following his discharge from the hospital, Austin said he was grateful for the excellent care he received and was eager to fully recover and return as quickly as possible to the Pentagon. Walter Reed doctor said that Austin had progressed well and that his strength is rebounding. So that call is very interesting, says explicitly no sirens. I'm sorry, they, they, the ambulance has sirens when it shows up uh, because they specifically didn't want people to know about it. Um, that seems to add credence to the idea that it was a little bit underhanded how they tried to leave Biden in the dark, no? I mean, it's interesting. For my big question with this story, completely acknowledging that obviously this was poorly handled, is whether the cover-up cover is bigger than the crime, is worse than the crime, and what exactly— oh, it's undoubtedly worse than that. I mean, what the crime is, what, he had to go right. to the hospital. It's not—it's it's fine. And, and, it's, and if that's the case, what exactly are the implications here of this story, which has— 
it's worth reporting on, but has seemingly maybe garnered outsized um, attention. And, I, and I'm, I'm not denying that there might yeah. be some impl bigger implications that I'm missing, but this is from the Washington Post uh, from about an hour ago. They say that he had taken steps to temporarily transfer authority for certain operational matters to his deputy, Kathleen Hicks, but did not disclose the diagnosis or surgery to his chief of staff or others. You heard... Um, a spokesperson there saying that they're reviewing the practices, the, the chain of command practices to make sure authority is properly delegated in emergency situations like that. But broadly speaking, the idea of wanting to keep uh, an emergency ride to the hospital relatively private, what, regardless of what your job is, regardless of what your professional context is, do I want my neighbors to know that I'm going to the hospital? Do I want to have some generalized medical privacy? Yeah, I don't know that I see that as especially insidious or necessarily as connected to the failure to disclose to his bosses. The, the problem isn't that he didn't let the public know. The problem is that he didn't let other people in the White House know who could then make the proper accommodations for him not being at his post, right? Yeah, I don't know that it's getting outsized media coverage. I mean, we're not covering it like so, like doing sure. the whole show sure. about it. We've mentioned it a couple times because it is odd. Um, I mean, yeah, everybody should have the right to medical privacy. I mean, it's just it's fairly standard practice, I think, to do the to do the sirens. Can you can normal people ask for well, them to sneak in a little bit more surreptitiously? I, I genuinely don't know. I I, I live in a an apartment building, and I, I see. Um, I see ambulances, medical, um, all those vehicles, like, constantly. Well, what the dispatcher um, said, and this is, again, from the Post, um, the 911 dispatcher said, usually when they turn into a residential neighborhood, they'll turn them off, the lights and sirens, but added that the driver is legally required to keep them on while transiting main roads. So I don't think you can characterize, one can characterize it as a um, looking for bizarre request. Yes, when it's something they apparently do already. And again... I don't know what the implications of that are supposed to be, that I don't want my neighbors to see me hauled away in an ambulance with looky-loos coming out and watching me, a, a public well, figure, being wheeled away in a moment of vulnerability. That, to me, is not what's so damning. What's so damning is the idea that someone in a senior cabinet position, while America is on the brink of escalating conflict in the Middle yeah. East, war in Ukraine, all these other kinds of things, simply would be gone and under anesthesia and not be able to respond or delegate authority. But it's hard not to escape the conclusion that those two things are related. How, how um, so? In that he didn't want it to leak out that he was going. That's what I read into this. I mean, not just that he does, yeah. didn't want other people, he didn't want the, the Biden administration officials to realize that this was what was happening to him, as evidenced by the fact that the deputy didn't know what was going on. They didn't report it. And so I... It seems related. It seems Look, I, like I, I, not just I don't want to embarrass me in front of my neighbors. You know, uh, they, okay, they, if they turn down the sirens when they turn into a residential street at night and they don't want to wake people up, that's that sounds. I'm not imputing their practices. That sounds great. But I totally get that. But imagine if there were a world where he did inform his superiors, but had also made the same 911 call. The 911 right. call wouldn't be damning. So it does sure. seem to me that the but he did. the critical issue here is whether or not he did what is he was supposed to do in a professional capacity to protect the. The country right. by not leaving his post unguarded. But, but it, the, the fact that he had the, uh, um, the 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 wherewithal to make that request for keeping down the lights and can we sneak me out of here gives credence to the idea that um, not informing people wasn't just some 
oversight or oops, I should have, but I kind of forgot it too, and it was stressful, and I did, but but was like part of an effort to actively mislead in some way. Yeah, I mean, I I know. I think that's the concern. I, I, I've seen this floated out. I can't remember if John Kirby said this or somebody else, but there's this idea that he is a uh, military guy who. It does not want to showcase vulnerability, that he didn't want to publicly talk about uh, struggling with prostate cancer, which is a particular kind of cancer that has, you know, uh, implications for one's kind of masculinity as compared to other kinds of cancers, and that all of this, including his very negligent, to be clear, failure to, failure to let his uh, let the, the Biden administration know what was happening, was as much about his kind of personal insecurities around what he was going through and his personal psychology than a conspiracy of some sort to what exactly? To, I mean, what, what explanation is there for not disclosing something like that apart from that you're embarrassed? I mean, did he get anything out of it? Was he sabotaging the U.S. government with some, some negative outcome? It's, I, I get that he, he was professionally wrong. Like, he did the wrong thing and something bad could have happened. But it's hard for me to read into a—read into it a kind of nefarious agenda when I can't see what he would have gained from it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't— Apart from privacy, apart sure, from guarding himself against embarrassment. I didn't know prostate cancer is particularly embarrassing. No? I no, I've never heard that before. I, I guess I can follow that. Through, Men struggle with ED afterward. They struggle with incontinence. Okay. It, it it affects your sex organs in a quite literal way. So of course it's stigmatizing. It's part of why men don't get the checkups as regularly as they should. You know, all of those things are definitely built into a prostate cancer diagnosis and, and treatment. I think that that is hmm. that's that's pretty common. And I can see the, the the psychology of that makes sense to me. Doesn't excuse it, of course, but the psychology of that does make some some sense to me. And the absence of any other explanation. But I'm sure we'll hear more about this and we'll let you know if there's any more that's revealed about what exactly was going on in this truly bizarre case of non-disclosure. Stick around, more rising for you right after this. Vice President Kamala Harris appeared on The View yesterday to talk all things 2024 and well, let's take a look. Harris asked what she was going to do to, quote, stop the crazies. And what are you going to do to stop the crazies? I am scared as heck. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I'm traveling our country. You know, there's an old saying that there are only two ways to run for office, either without an opponent or scared. So on all of those points, yes, we should all be scared. The vice president also broke down what exactly this year's presidential election will mean for our democracy. We are in the month of January. We've got 10 months to go until the election. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, and you've seen it even just this week, um, we are all starting to narrow in on what this election will mean. And frankly, in the midst of so many big issues challenging our world that, you know, are not binary, you know, it's not just one side or the other. On this one, there's a split screen that you can throw up and see. Yeah. And it's going to be the choice between what is about respecting our democracy, what is about competence versus chaos. Kamala Harris gave another warning about a possible Trump election win. A person running 
to become the commander-in-chief, who is admitting he would weaponize the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. These issues in terms of how we are doing on a daily basis and how our democracy and our country is doing are inextricably linked. And here's one last clip from this action-packed view episode that we wanted to share with you for good measure. We have to earn the reelect, and we have to communicate what we have achieved. Yes. And, and that is going to be one of our big challenges. We've done a lot of good work. We need to net, let people know who brought it to them. <laughs> All right. There was... Um, Let's take it from the top. She said yeah. so little with so much. What I've noticed is that she does a thing where she'll just like point around the room and name things and state truths. So Robbie, we're drinking coffee in this room. And it's important to realize that when you have computers in front of you, you are at work. And when America goes to work, that's when we win. Yeah, it's the just the <laughs> emphasis rather than the words. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, reminds like of uh, of um, the, the the Family Guy clip. Uh, there's an episode where Lois is running for mayor, and uh, the dog uh, Brian tells her like the voters aren't paying attention to actually words you're using. It's how you say it, and then she's just like. 9-11 was bad. 9-11. 9-11. Right? It's not, it's just empty. It's it's the more the cadence than anything yeah. else with her. But substantively, Who are the it crazies? is interesting. Who's be I, I want to come to that uh, right off top. Uh, it seems like this is another one of, I mean, it's the views framing, so I don't blame, I don't think that that's right. a word that she would have reached for necessarily, unless it was like printed on a mug in front of her. Um, but the question is about what, how we should, how politicians should talk about the fact that 50% of the country is obviously conservative, and much of that 50% identifies specifically with the MAGA movement. Now, there was some, were some branding attempts from the Biden administration to um, cordon off MAGA as a separate entity right. than um, and not Republicans. To, and specifically not to round them up to half of the entire country, as right. Hillary Clinton famously did. Right. And, you know, I think the problem with that is that increasingly people either identify as MAGA as Republicans or feel like Trump is so embattered that even if they personally don't describe themselves as MAGA, they would vote for him. And I think we saw that in the Iowa polls, that people who did not self-identify as MAGA or who even thought that Trump might be liable for some of these criminal issues would still cast their mm -hmm. vote, for, vote for him regardless, because we live in a vote blue no matter who, lesser of two evils style country, where a lot of people who do have frustrations with Trump want to vote for him. And that being the case, are you going to tell all those people that are willing to vote for Trump because they're simply not Democrats? They simply, from a policy perspective, are never going to vote for a Democrat. Right. That's just like no one at that table, except for, um, you know, Alyssa Farah, is ever going to vote for a Republican. Right. Crazies. I'm not sure that that is right. winning hearts and minds. Right. She was set up for it, as you're right, because right. that's Joy. how Joy phrased it. But you could say, well, I mean, the, the, the people you're describing as crazies are our fellow Americans, and Joe Biden is their president as well, and I want to win them over. Maybe that's impossible, but I'm going to try. I don't think Donald Trump is deli delivered for them substantially, and here's everything. We th and, 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 all, and also, maybe speak to, you think, they're, what, are they crazy for having dissenting, for wanting to embrace free speech and wanting to be able to express their views on social media or embracing COVID views that have been demonized? I mean, you know, uh, RFK Jr. and his supporters called crazy by many mainstream people in the media attracted at least some 
level of Democratic support. He has supporters. He has people who voted for Barack Obama and who voted for Joe Biden who support him now. Um, again, you can just strategically just give up on these people. These people are crazies. These are not our voters. We're hoping to keep as many voters as we have and then maybe pick off some affluent Republican women in the suburbs who just can't, can't mm -hmm. do Trump again. Maybe that's the strategy. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, you can point to specific crazy things that Republican politicians are saying and doing right now. After all, there is a Republican primary happening that gives you fodder to talk about what people actually believe. And we're going to defeat unlike, the woke mind virus. <laughs> unlike what it. Democrats have going on on their side. So, for example, you could pick up on the fact that there is this— um, fear people have about whether or not Donald Trump in office and a Republican Congress is going to pass a national abortion ban. That's something that mm -hmm. she could say, well, I don't want to weigh in on the constituents. We all were running a campaign to bring this country together. That's what Don, um, uh, Joe Biden ran on in, in 2020. But I am willing to say that there are people in our government and who are running for office who are trying to split us apart by passing laws that hurt some of the most vulnerable among us. She could pick up on, let's say, some of Nikki Haley's recently condemned uh, comments about uh, what the cause of the Civil War was or how America has never been a racist country. Nikki Haley, who was in office during the Charleston shooting, I believe, who had to take down the Confederate flag from the front of the State House in, in South Carolina, you know, pick up on some of the easy wins that Republicans are handing up on you on a platter. They're uh, in Kentucky. They're trying to uh, pass a law that allows you to do self-defense to hit and violently attack homeless people. There are bills across the country with Republicans trying to um, end free school lunch programs. I mean, there's plenty of fodder to talk about what politicians are doing, Republican politicians are doing, that are out of step with even their base. Health care concerns, all of these things are a real problem. There's real problems in America. But instead of doing that, you know, she leans into this framing, which I think shows a real lack of political instinct. Then in frank. the next uh, uh, question, she when she does exactly what you described in the, it's January, we know, <laughs> 10 months to the election, uh, 250 days, uh, however many blue? hours. Like, I'm wearing blue. Okay, we got it. You've set the stage. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. She, uh, she also... Um, um, I, I lost my train of thought because she's so disorienting. <laughs> so did she. What did she say? Oh, binary choice. It's yeah. a binary choice. Well, it's actually not a binary not choice a binary at choice. all. Um, in fact, there's a, a third person in the race who is pulling at 12%. That's, you can't just write that off. So it's not, in fact, a binary choice. There are other candidates. There will be a Green Party candidate, a Libertarian Party candidate. There might be other independent candidates. Um, and there's other many candidates in the Democratic thousands, Party. Millions of Americans will vote for a candidate other than um, the Republican or the Democrat. Um, both of us sitting here are probably not very likely to vote for the Democrat or the Republican. Most certainly so, not. Um, so to just do erasure on that is always kind of obnoxious. Yeah, let's look at this. Marianne Williamson is currently leading uh, uh, Phillips, Dean Phillips, um, with twice as much. She's got 6.4% of the vote as of today's 538 average poll. Phillips is at 3.1%. Um, and to go on TV, to not only shut down a primary, not only to change the debate, uh, the primary schedule to advantage Joe Biden, putting a state where he performed very strongly first uh, back mm -hmm. in 2020, but then to go on TV and lie about the existence of a Democratic primary. If you're really confident in your position, let the truth be known. Let Biden actually advocate, compete for the votes that he feels so entitled to. But what's happening now is that you're going to have lied people into the believing that they had no other options. And then when they go to the polls or they're facing going to the polls this fall, they might look around and say, well, I'd rather just stay home because none of these options are adequate. Right. And then they're going to turn around and blame the very base who has been waving the red flag 
they're ringing the alarm bells loudly now yeah. for months for their failure to actually beat Trump. Yeah, they want it. They want it to be a binary choice, but it's not. Actually, they want it to be one short of a binary <laughs> choice. They want it to not be a choice. It's just Trump. There's no one else on the ballot. Yeah, Maybe they got to they gotta protect Biden them. and like January 6th or something <laughs> are your choices. That would be ideal from their standpoint. More rising right after this. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon is re-entering the political fray with a new message to Democrats, grow up and listen to Trump supporters because Trump was kind of right about some things. Here's Dimon at Davos talking to Democrats about how they need to sit down and shut up. People are growing. They're hungry to grow. They're innovating. It's, it's everywhere. It's not just Silicon Valley. So we've got this great hand. But when people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump and they think they're voting and they're basically scapegoating them that you are like him. Uh, and but I don't think they're voting for Trump because his family values. Now, if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He's kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm -hmm. He grew the economy quite well. China, Trade, China ta virus. Tax reform worked. Yeah. He was right about some of China. I don't th I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when yeah. he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about I Mexico. I don't like. But he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And that's why they're voting for him. And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. And when you guys have people up here, you should, have, you should always ask the why. Not like it's a binary thing. You're supporting right. Trump. You're not supporting Trump. Why are you supporting Trump? It's hard to Trump? hate 75 million of your fellow Americans. And it's, I, I agree. It's done quite and, I mean, you know, the it. Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, not hugging on to their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Like, can we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? Jimmy, and, and I do think the economy will affect. And I think this, this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. Friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, weighed in, writing, For years, Barack Obama and Jamie Dimon were inseparable. The J.P. Morgan chair vocally supported Obama, and Obama frequently heaped praise on Dimon and acted to help J.P. Morgan. That's what makes these comments from Dimon about Trump and Trump supporters all the more remarkable. Indeed. I think this is one of those instances where you really see how superficial the sort of liberal pushback toward uh, Trump is. It was all about vibes. It's all about they thought he was impolitic. They didn't like how he sounded. It was awkward for them at parties and their liberal uh, elite backgrounds. But when it comes down to it, when they realize that he maintained, frankly, the economic and political status quo that existed before him, suddenly all of those concerns go out the window. Jamie Dimon and Bernie Sanders ended up in these kind of weird online wars back in 2020 because Bernie Sanders was advancing substantive uh, populist financial policy that would have actually hurt people like Jamie Dimon. He called him out for being fined $13 billion for mortgage fraud and illegally foreclosing on military families, bribing foreign officials, and receiving $416 billion in taxpayer money uh, in the 2008 bailouts. That was the kind of critique Bernie Sanders was making. And you're never going to see someone like Bernie and um, Jamie Dimon being best friends. But what you, will, what you will see is someone like Jamie Dimon saying, hey, at the end of the day, Trump isn't that much of a threat to the status quo. I think he's frankly right about the framing, as we talked about in an earlier segment, of not looping every every conservative in under some MAGA umbrella to try to stigmatize them. And of course, he's right about Trump being right on trade and some of these other issues. But that has always been the case. And there have been politicians that weren't Donald Trump who were also right on trade, i.e., the kind of Bernie-Trump mirror universes of each other that existed in the 2016 race. And someone like Jamie Dimon was never going to back a, 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 a kind of um, 
America first trade policy coming out of someone like Bernie, because at the end of the day, it came with too much of a threat to his own bottom line. So I would just take all of this with a little bit of a grain of salt. I thought I should remind our viewers what Donald Trump had to say about Jamie Dimon <laughs> as recently as November 30th of this past year. Highly overrated globalist Jamie Dimon, the CEO <laughs> of J.P. Morgan, is quietly pushing another non-MAGA person, Nikki Haley, for president. I've never been a big Jamie Dimon fan, but had to live with this guy when he came begging to the White House. I guess I don't have to live with him anymore, and that's a really good thing. Yeah. So there's... No, uh, no affection on uh, Trump's part, um, which speaks to this power Trump has that everyone is expected to treat him with kid, like very nicely, and you can't lash out at him in anger, or you're just like totally written off by all conservatives. But he can say whatever he wants about anyone else. <laughs> it's uh, it's real funny. Um, uh, well, what other dynamic? He's, to this? So, and, and oh, Jamie Dimon is just to be a, has endorsed Nikki Haley and is pushing for Nikki Haley. Um, so the Jamie Diamond type peoples are really who you yes, bring into the fold exactly. if you make Nikki Haley vice president. Yes, this is this is all about establishment preservation. Talking about this under a partisan lens really misses the key story here. One other aspect that is worth noting that is that in the last electoral cycle, and then apparently in this electoral cycle as well, there were rumors that Jamie Dimon might be seeking a run for office. This is from a Reuters report of May of last year. Um, he, uh, billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman, He's everywhere. He's like the Forrest Gump of politics. And of course, Bill Ackman is the person who spearheaded the effort to get Claudine Gay ousted from uh, Harvard University and then later found out that his own wife was committing even worse plagiarism uh, than uh, what uh, Claudine Gay has been accused of. He uh, said Jamie Dimon should run for president back in last year. And Jamie Dimon responded saying, I love my country and maybe one day I'll serve my country in one capacity or another, he told Bloomberg News back then. So the kind of statement that he's making there, saying, hey, I'm a consensus person, I don't hate the MAGA people, I'm willing to bring the country together, definitely does smell to me like he's trying to lay the foundation for himself, not being the liberal bestie mm -hmm. of Barack Obama or a bailout king who's a billionaire who took billions from the American tax dollars after being part of a business that was part of the predatory campaign that caused the financial crisis to begin with. But hey, I'm a guy who understands um, progressive trade policies or, or more protectionist trade policies. I'm a guy who's willing to talk to anybody in America. Don't notice the billion dollars in my bank account. I'm really a man of the people. That seems to be the pitch that he's giving here. And, and again, a radical diversion from the way that he was talking back during the Obama era. Frankly, protectionist trade policies um combined with bailouts for the super wealthy or for business in general is, for my mind, combining the worst of all my of all, all the policies out there. I don't want to see more protectionist trade policies. I don't want to see more micromanaging of businesses or more red tapes or any of that. I also don't want to see handouts or bailouts or preferential or special treatment. That's the problem with having these uh, very wealthy corporate people involved in our politics, because obviously, like, I, I, from a libertarian standpoint, I agree that I don't want the government to over meddle in business, and I want it to generally leave business alone in order to create a more prosperous um, conditions for, for everyone and jobs and everything that goes along with that. And, I, and for that reason, I think many, though not all Republicans, would be better choices than many, not all of Democrats. But I don't want to empower people who then are more, are better connected and are able to just pilfer. Um, as all of these um, CEOs were able to during the era of, era of bailouts, bailouts being only opposed by a sliver of the of the of the political class on both the right and the left. You're, you know, that's your where your far left people and my far right people come together to oppose that um, that duopoly. So it's. Um,
Yeah. One other interesting aspect of Jamie Dimon coming into the political spotlight right now is, of course, the reason he's been in the press most frequently over the last couple of years is because of Epstein stuff. Right. Remember, J.P. Morgan is where Epstein banked. It's being sued in the Virgin Islands for facilitating uh, Epstein's sex crimes. When asked about this last year, uh, Jamie Dimon told CNBC that the lawsuits against the bank uh, related to his former client, the sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, have impacted its brand equity a little bit. He said, quote, but we banked Jeffrey Epstein, and I'm so sorry that we did. I wish we hadn't. Uh, had we known then what we know today, we obviously would have. And I think part of what's coming out in these Virgin Island right. uh, disputes is how much people high up in the bank had very close right. personal relationships with We have emails now him. from people at J.P. Morgan following Jeffrey Epstein's uh, conviction being, you know, doing his time. I mean, I, it's very... He didn't do his time. He was right. under house arrest. But following that that kind of legal proceeding, eager to reconnect with right. him and talking Back in about some very, again, this is not Jamie Dimon himself. This right. is other officials at J.P. Morgan. I think they're under a lot of scrutiny, deservedly, for their connection to him, which we will continue to follow on this show. More rising. Right after this. Trump went on an all-caps tirade on his platform, Truth Social, today, arguing that a U.S. president must have full immunity from prosecution. Trump wrote, a president of the United States must have full immunity, without which it would be impossible for him or her to properly function. Any mistake, even if well-intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term end. Even events that cross the line must fall under total immunity, or it will be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. He added, there must be certainty. Trump's post comes a week after his lawyer tried to argue that presidents could only be prosecuted if they had already been impeached and convicted by the Senate. One judge on the panel determining whether to toss out Trump's federal election interference charges noted that if taken to its logical extreme, a president could take any action on his last day in office without fear of criminal prosecution or simply resign shortly thereafter, preventing Congress from impeaching and convicting in time. Former MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan responded to Trump's post, writing, There is only one story that matters in domestic American politics. The GOP frontrunner for president believes he should have total immunity from prosecution, even for events that cross the line, his words. And he plans to be a dictator, but only for a day, phew, his words. I, I don't know that it's fair to say that should be the only story out there, the only reason to base a vote, but it is obviously indefensible, and I'm, frankly, I haven't even seen anyone on the right try to defend it. Um, the, the immediate, what you're confronted with, if you embrace this, is does that mean Joe Biden's authority is totally limitless? Could he, could he order the Secret Service to go shoot Donald Trump, and we couldn't do anything because the president has full legal immunity? We, you know, what, if, what, what, what if he, you know, st started on January 6th grounds? He's, you know, he's uh, he's putting down an insurrectionist, and there's going to be no scrutiny of that. I mean, it obviously is laughable. No conservative would take that position that that Joe Biden uh, should be totally shielded from uh, from from. Uh, criminal uh, proceedings. Uh, we don't, broadly speaking, we shouldn't want to make our political leaders more uh, uh, more safe from such things, less accountable mm -hmm. to the justice system. We want to hold government employees, I do at least, more accountable. Um, qualified immunity, which is, this is 
kind of related to this, this doctrine that um, when certain government officials are acting in their official capacities, you can't, even if they violate your rights or do something wrong, you know, you can, maybe you can sue the agency or something, but you can't ho hold that person accountable. It comes up a lot in police stuff. Um, which, because police are a sympathetic group to the right, there is some appetite for um, for vigorously protecting qualified immunity. But I always point out, but that's the same thing that protects, you know, the admin an administrator in a school who violates uh, your free speech rights or something like that. You can't do anything. They're shielded by that same. It's a it's a general shield for government employees that shouldn't exist. So. You mentioned that not many people have defended this particular statement. This statement is new, just a few uh, tweeted or uh, truthed out a few hours ago, as I understand it. Uh, but people have been defending statements of this kind that Donald Trump has been making for some time. Of course, this whole narrative that Donald Trump is a dictator who's not going to step it down is because he said in multiple interviews and speeches now, I will be a dictator on day one. When Sean Hannity tried to give him an off-ramp from those statements, he doubled down, saying, I will be a dictator on day one. And as we mentioned in the read, in one of his election interference cases, his attorneys have made this argument that if it led to its—if it followed to its logical conclusion, would mean that because—if you hinge your ability to prosecute a former president on their impeachment, you can simply avoid impeachment by stepping down or doing something dastardly on your, your last day before you drop out of—you're you're out of office, and then have complete and total immunity for anything done within the scope of your employment, even if the thing that's done within the scope of your employment, like ordering a hit on your political enemy, is plainly illegal, immoral, and unethical. So you cannot piecemeal this out. This isn't about one tweet. And as much as Democrats have been, in some cases, alarmist about the threats to democracy, it is not alarmism when you're looking at Trump repeatedly making statements and his attorneys repeatedly making statements that suggest, that argue, that he is beyond legal reproach. Yeah. I, we should all want, all Americans should want these arguments to fail in court, because it's not about Donald Trump specifically. We, we can't give anyone holding the office of presidency unlimited authority to do whatever they want. That totally flies in the face of the constitutional system we set up specifically not to have a dictator or a king, but to have a, a very weak executive, who I think, unfortunately, the office of the executive has accrued um, more powers than it was intended to have by our founders, and that has led to a lot of violations of our civil liberties and a lot of, uh, frankly, foreign policy decisions that were intended to be left to Congress in the original thinking. But regardless, it would be an insane escalation. It would be the slippery slope, be tobogganing down it like mad to give the president. I mean, it's laughable. So no one should defend this. It's not about Trump. Um, on the Again, on the dictator comments, uh, I, I think what he was trying to say, although you don't have to you know, be put at ease because of it, was that he was going to do a lot of executive executive orders relating to the border and other matters on day one, which is akin to what—I I don't like this. I don't like executive orders. I don't think governing by fiat is good, but it's akin to the kind of things that every president has done on their first day, or at least our last four presidents. Um, but people don't have to take comfort in that. The theory that Trump is advancing ought to be rejected by the court at every level. It's worth noting that— uh, Iowa caucus polls show that three in 10 caucus go goers saw uh, Trump as unfit if he were convicted of one of these crimes. It's a weird, it's a kind of a soft barometer for how important people are seeing election denialism. Um, but it, that number to many Democrats is going to seem too low, given that, again, we're seeing these kind of authoritarian statements coming out of Donald Trump. I mean, the irony is that Democrats, in some ways, 
cried wolf characterizing Donald Trump's existence as early as 2016 as a threat to democracy, now that, frankly, he is gesturing at genuine threats to democracy, um, I, I don't—I'm I, I, concerned that, frankly, this is going to—they don't have any credibility, basically, to make this case. I saw— um, Well, and they also don't have any—I mean, the, their credibility of some people in the Democratic coalition is a little bit underwater because there was—I mean, Hillary—it's I, I, not, not, not making an equivalency about it, but— Hillary attributed her loss to, you know, Russian interference, said the election wasn't fair. People like Stacey Abrams have done that. So much routine, even like Chris Hayes advanced a theory about Robbie, how the electors could I know you're not it. saying it's an equivalency, and I'm very happy to criticize Hillary Clinton and did at the time as someone who very proudly did not vote for her in 2016 and who felt like the DNC was rigging the primary in 2016, not felt like. It was substantiated. Donna Brazil talked about it. It's, you know, it's right. on the record. However, that is a radically different thing. It's bad. But it is a radically different thing than what Donald Trump has been accused of, yes. which is to foment a plot to overturn right. the election That's why I said it was not equivalency. I agree. And, and moreover, to continue to say things like, I should have complete and total immunity and have your lawyers arguing that I could kill my political opponents and still be immune from prosecution, from criminal prosecution. Can you imagine if a Democrat of Joe Biden, who is actually president right now with the power to ostensibly order a hit, hit God forbid, on his political opponents, were making those kinds of arguments? Republicans would rightly be up and arms about that being a coercive threat to Donald right. Trump and his presidency. And yet, here Donald Trump is making that argument, simultaneously trying to make the case that, that Joe Biden is the corrupt party through the scandal, uh, alleged scandal with his son, and that they should pick him as the more stabilizing, equitable, righteous force here. I mean, this is why so many Americans are disaffected and are unsatisfied with both of these choices on either side of the aisle. Yeah, I mean— it's not—it's—what else can I say? I, I don't—I uh, am not a supporter of Trump for many reasons, including that he embraces a theory of unlimited power for the executive, something we cannot allow to, to happen, and that, again, I have not seen specifically conservatives defending it. But if anyone is defending it, I would just say, so does Joe Biden have this? Like, he is the president right now. If you're arguing the office of the presidency has this power, then Joe Biden has this power. Is that really what we think? And not a single person would say yeah. this. So. Yeah. More rising right after this. Rising TikTok star Rashad Al Haddad, also known as the Hot Houthi in the Yemeni Timothy Chalamet, I prefer Tim Houthi Chalamet, has been attracting a sizable fan base by posting videos of himself aboard a cargo ship seized by uh, uh, Iran backed rebels last year. I only hesitate there because we rarely uh, characterize uh, US backed efforts by Israel uh, as such. Uh, since the Hamas terrorist attacks on October 7th, Houthi militias have been targeting ships in the Red Sea on the basis that they have an obligation under the Geneva Convention to stop genocide being carried out in Gaza. Now, the ship was hijacked by at least 10 armed Houthis last November. Al-Haddad is one of the individuals who has visited the ship since the takeover. Al-Haddad was recently interviewed about his filming on the Houthi ships and his popularity on popular streamer Hassan Piker's show, Let's Take a Look. 
آه والله يعني شيء طبيعي يعني ما في اي تاثير يعني اهم شيء ان احنا نوقف مع القضيه الفلسطينيه هذا اهم شيء. He says he's fine and uh, everything is is normal and the most important thing is um, that they stand with Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. What is the mood in in Yemen overall since America started bombing positions in Sana'a and other places? كيف معنوياتكم في اليمن وكيف الاحساس يعني بالشعب هلا باليمن بعد ما بلشت امريكا بالقصف؟ والله شيء طبيعي يعني ما في اي خوف ولا اي تاثير يعني اصلا متعودين على هذا من قبل 11 سنه يعني شيء طبيعي ما في اي شيء. He's saying that it's pretty usual they've been used to this for 11 years now and they're not scared. That's crazy. All right, so there was some controversy around Hassan Piker's choice to conduct this interview. Hassan uh, Piker has a huge platform and has raised millions of dollars for Gazan aid by talking about uh, the humanitarian crisis there on his platform. He's also raised money for a lot of other causes uh, with his streaming platform. And so I want to put it to you. Is there substantively different from, say, um, the interviews of various members of Hamas that have happened on mainstream channels, their spokespeople and the like? I know that um, uh, there was one, for example, on, on Al Jazeera that went viral, which asked serious uh, pushback and gave pushback questions about the strategic choices that have been made by Hamas. Is the, is the criticism here that he conducted the interview or something about the way in which the interview was conducted? What say you? I don't even know who that is until just now, Hassan Piker. Seriously? Um, yeah, I'm not as on, on YouTube as uh, the fact that we're a YouTube show would have it. Um, was the interview... Did he push back? Did he? Uh, I don't know what. I mean, I mean obviously the. I, I don't obviously. Yeah, it's fine. Journalists should interview people, even even um, very bad people. I don't have any problem with that. The, but the the portraying him, and maybe that's that's not Hassan Piker doing that. It's I don't know Gen Z or something. The framing of him as the the thirsting for him. I find that pretty gross. But people can do whatever they want. Um, I mean, <laughs> the Houthis. Um, have been criticized by Human Rights Watch for recruiting child soldiers. Their slogan, one of their slogans is, I believe, death to the Jews, a curse upon the Jews. So, you know, thirst after this guy if you want, you do you. Uh, I'm not going to glamorize um, someone of that, who's part of that movement, and— um, well, that's, I think that's fine but. and legitimate, but I, I don't think that's what Hassan Piker was doing. So I'm not accusing Hassan of that. Hassan Piker, um, who's uh, actually cousins with um, Cenk Uger, has one of—I I was trying to see if he actually is the biggest, but he is one of uh, the biggest uh, Twitch streamers in the world. Um, back in uh, 2020, for example, to give you a scale of this, he had 125,000 live viewers uh, during the presidential debate that year. I mean, the platform is really uh, enormous. And he is a younger—I think he's either a young millennial or an old uh, Gen Zer. I think he's more like a young millennial. And uh, has a huge audience in that cohort, who are the people on TikTok who have really uplifted this guy because they feel like the— specific struggle that he's engaged in and uh, supporting the blockade, um, a blockade to uh, goods going to Israel specifically, is no different than, let's say, many of the sanctions that America, through its economic might, is willing to impose on the rest of the world. In this case, because of the geographic reality of where Yemen is placed, these people have an ability to say, we are going to uphold the responsibility set forth in the Genocide Convention and say, we're going to do what we can do to put pressure on Israel but to I stop the genocide. But I guess how is this different than fangirling over, like, 
Nick Fuentes or something. I mean, if you want to have a conversation about whether anonymous people on TikTok shouldn't refer to him as uh, the hot hooty, I think that's perfectly legitimate. Okay. But I'd like to get your opinion on the actual journalistic practice and the choice that Hassan Piker, who is the famous, you know, potentially accountable party here in this story, his choice to simply conduct an interview of of this figure that's become yeah, kind I don't of have notable. any problem with that. I didn't have any problem with Tucker Carlson interviewing Andrew Tate or any number of other people. I Journalists should do interviews, and then we can scrutinize how the interview was conducted. Did it, um, did it involve pushback? Did it advance, you know, knowledge, or was it just um, uh, pumping up or fluffing up someone uh, and someone's odious beliefs? So I didn't, I didn't watch the whole thing. Yeah. I was really more responding to the, the <laughs> very disturbing to me um, level of reverence here, which from the again, not from Hassan Piker, but from. Whoever on TikTok or wherever else is describing this person this way, um, that to me suggests a troubling lack of awareness of the atrocities this group. Even if you are 100% in support of of the the people of Palestine and are totally against what Israel is doing and think we should not be funding it and think because we're funding it, it is our ships have somehow become legitimate um, targets. I would, even if you, th which I don't think any of that, but if you did think all of that, it would still be weird to me to like, be like, isn't he cute? Someone who, again, slogan is death That's to the Jews I, and I don't is, think it's very a, weird. his organization recruits child soldiers. I, I, think, I don't think it's very weird, one, because this individual has not said death to the Jews. That's not a part of this person's record. And moreover, the IDF soldiers are famous, are famous for posting thirst traps. There's articles dating back. Here's a Rolling Stone article from 2021 saying Israeli Defense Forces soldiers embrace uh, thirst traps on TikTok. Um, there have been any number of uh, videos that have been circulated, posted by IDF soldiers, women in particular, gyrating, doing sexy dances in the middle of the country where that is now a uh, middle of the land where um, South Africa is alleging a genocide and ethnic cleansing campaign so are currently taking place. A little gross. No, I, you're saying that it's weird. I'm saying it's not weird. It's very common for people to not sublimate their sexual identities in the middle of a crisis, one way or the other. And I, I didn't mean weird, unusual. I meant weird, gross. Oh well. That's a subjective opinion, but I think people do this across the board. You know, that's you know, it's not uh, unique to one group or another. It's worth noting that uh, the part of the um, interview that I did see, the uh, individual was very, uh, very much emphasized that he was not interested in the kind of superficial nature of his uh, popularity. That he thinks that people should focus on, not on his looks, but on the um, ongoing humanitarian crisis. Um, mass starvation, um, lack of uh, medical care, uh, ampute amputations without um, anesthetic, all of those things that are going on in Gaza, and to his credit, continually push the conversation in the direction of focusing on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Okay. Uh, we will—oh, there's a little bit more from the interview that we can play. Let's play that. I don't know if you can answer this or not, but um, as far as the Ansar Allah militancy goes, like as far as the standing military goes, like I don't know if he is allowed to speak on this. I don't know if he's like actually a part of the groups at all or just like simply a TikToker. You know what I mean? I don't know how to ask that in the best way possible, though. Yeah, I feel I feel like we can ask it pretty directly. Um, okay. Uh, Hassan, 
شخصيه على التيك توك ولا يعني يعني بده يعرف شو شو الرابط بينك وبين انصار الله طيب يعني بقول لك يعني انا يمني يعني كيمني يعني انا واقف على جانب فلسطين his answer is a yemeni who stands with palestine what led him to uh, go to one of the ships personally like what were some uh, experiences that he had that um, caused him to want to go حسن بده يعرف شو هو اللي دفعك على زياره السفن هاي وشو التجارب اللي مريت فيها اللي خلتك تهتم بهذا الشيء وانه انه يكون جعبالك انه تزور هاي السفن والله انا احب المغامرات وطبعا هذا كل الاجل فلسطين يعني وان شاء الله في يعني في اشياء بتكون جديد واشياء مثيره اكبر um, he says he, he likes adventures and he and he is a big supporter of palestine hmm. yeah in many ways the impression is that he's a kid who you know is getting involved in this but who has a very strong uh, drive like many people in the region well, to want to advocate for the interest of Palestinians under uh, occupation yeah but again i think that undersells <laughs> the um, humanitarian abuses that the houthi movement itself is accused of and their like commitment to anti-semitism but people can stand whoever they want more rising right after this Elon Musk reportedly gave former CNN host Don Lemon a hefty pile of money for his new Twitter X show, according to journalist Kara Swisher. Now, Swisher alleges she advised Lemon not to work with Musk, but that if he did, to get the money up front. I suggested he do a deal with Ben Shapiro or do the Megyn Kelly route. I didn't think this was a good idea, so that's just full disclosure. And I told him so. And I said, you know, get the money up front. I just don't think it's going to go well for you on this platform. But he did it. That's all according to Kara Swisher. She added, I think they paid Don a pile of money. I know they did. Last month, Don Lemon said he no longer watches or listens to corporate media after his ousting from CNN, and that instead he listens to Ben Shapiro's show and Pierce Morgan Unhinged. The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein tweeted, got to be a record time heel turn. Yeah, I mean, this is happening again and again. It seems like there are a lot of people who will readily accept uh, that person. a person is liberal one day and conservative or independent the next day. Um, there needs to be no evidence of someone's consistent beliefs. What seems like an obvious effort to money grab and chase an audience gets no real pushback, and people like Elon Musk, who are obviously offering this platform, um, seem to have no issue um, in terms of ideological integrity or consistency in saying, hey, these are our new bedfellows. Not just saying, here's someone I disagree with and I'm going to offer him a show. Right. But to say, no, we're how based that he's now saying he's a conservative, I believe this, let's go forward. Well, I, I, I don't know if he's saying he's a conservative. It sounds like he's saying, and this could be insincere, and it'll the quality, time will tell based on the quality of the show. But that he has a—he's broadened his um, his range of viewpoints he's consuming since leaving the CNN bubble. Um, maybe he would have fared better, actually, if he was—again, not agreeing, necessarily, with Megyn Kelly or Ben Shapiro-type people, but even aware of the arguments that they are— mustering or you know understanding conservatives better he was you know he was someone at CNN who was uh, who who actually frequently like put down his call or interrupted his colleagues when they were doing reporting on Trump you know from a oh we can't show our audience that that's just lies we shouldn't be covering this yep. uh, which is why he didn't endear himself to anyone on the right um, so I, I think people should approach whatever he's doing now with a lot of skepticism but um, I, I, but I, I don't hate the idea of, uh, of Twitter, of X, um, you know, to the extent it's making deals with people 
um, to, to get them onto the platform to produce content, having a range of people uh, with different backgrounds and different views would be good. And someone who once had an insider perspective and thus can expose how a, how a, a mainstream workplace uh, functions to to delegitimize or discourage or, or you know put blinders on and prevent outside perspectives from pre prevailing could be interesting. Now that is I, I, no endorsement necessarily of what's about to transpire. We have to give it some time. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Don Lemon sat there for decades and uh, was an establishment voice on that show. He participated in the Russiagate hysteria. He called to censor Donald Trump and to preserve democracy and do every other thing that every other CNN host has ever said. So I think you'd have to be pretty gullible to think that there's some sincere uh, political development here outside of, I think, a kind of political shift that happens when people transgress on certain culture lines and then decide to double down. So the only thing that Don Lemon has in common that I can tell with the kind of ideological cohort he's now joining with Andrew Tate and the like is that he disparaged women. And that's ultimately why he got kicked off of his show, from not being able to get along with his female colleagues and um, saying what he said about Nikki Haley's uh, reproductive viability. Other than that, I mean, it could be that that's the beginning of your journey toward the right. A lot of times when people feel unfairly attacked, um, they build a whole personality and political ideology around that. But I don't know that that's really substantive or useful to a genuine populist movement that I think made shows like Joe Rogan popular because Joe Rogan was willing not to buck just cultural norms, but to say, hey, these political parties aren't actually delivering for what the people I know actually want. They like He liked Bernie Sanders because he understood that healthcare was a real crisis at the same time that he was willing to, say, make some other critiques about whether or not um, trans women should compete in MMA. It wasn't just culture wars. So I'm not especially optimistic about the quality of the programming that will come along with Don Lemon if the only reason now he's developed this new politics is because uh, he got voiced it out from CNN. Well, you're in good company. Megyn Kelly also said, I'm not rooting for him, and did a montage of um, all of his uh, worst moments. Uh, Megyn Kelly also was not willing to rehabilitate uh, Russell Brand after those accusations um, came out. So uh, I, I don't think Don Lemon is going to get an immediate pass from—if his new audience is like, you know, that same kind of— kind of right-wing or independent or populist, whatever the ecosystem is, will they automatically embrace him? I doubt it. But if he has good content and—and, um, and, and again, it would be useful to have, like, an insider perspective in how, how the, you know, sausage gets made in places like CNN. But um, I don't think it's going to be, like, an Look, automatic embrace. I think 100 percent he'll get a pass for the people who are paying him money to do this show and who are part of this media ecosystem. We see how people like uh, Ian Miles Chong immediately embrace John Fetterman for saying that he supports Israel. That's all it takes. You say one thing and suddenly you get headlines, base John Fetterman is now said, a right-winger. like three things. Okay. What, what are the three things? <laughs> I like Israel, I like Israel more, and we should give all the bombs in the world no, to Israel? No, you also said Harvard's too woke and too crazy. And, all right, uh, that's, that's what it takes. So look, there was a moment in 2016. Yeah, he sounds like a Republican, there, so he's going to be embraced by conservative people. There was a moment in 2016. So you think it's normal to think Liz Cheney is great and liberal just because she thinks that Trump should have been impeached? 
That's ridiculous. I don't think it's most great, people but don't, I most people don't absolutely associate her with Democrats and the liberals. Right, but we criticize, we sit here every day and criticize Democrats from having that point of view and talk about how superficial, shallow, and ridiculous it is. Oh, Republicans and are also I'm, superficial. All I'm shallow. doing is being consistent and saying that people like Ian Miles Chong or even Elon Musk here, who have been willing to play so fast and loose with their ideologies, I think it really speaks to the fact that these ideological commitments for them are just funsies for the internet. These aren't core commitments that they have to a kind of politics that's supposed to uplift poor and working people in this country. Back in 2016, Donald Trump tapped into a real movement that Bernie Sanders also tapped into, which was people who recognized they lived in the richest country in the history of the world, but half the country, 40 percent of the country, was unable to meet a $400 emergency. We have minted more billionaires in the years during the pandemic and in the years since than has ever been before. The wage disparity has increased exponentially since the 1960s, which many people look back to as a halcyon economic era for the United States of America, where a CEO used to earn 30 times more than a employee, and now they earned earn 300-plus times more than their employees. Americans are more productive than ever. The money is going to the top. And someone like Donald Trump, who came along and said, hey, maybe our decision as to whether or not a factory should stay open in America should have to do with whether it supports a community in America and not just whether the shareholders of that company can earn another cent on a dollar by shipping it over to China, where they don't have uh, OSHA or any kind of uh, protections for their employees. And people who are in factories across America and in towns across America that were devastated by neoliberal economic policies that were supported by by both Republicans and Democrats, looked at Donald Trump saying that, looked at Bernie Sanders saying that, and said, oh, my gosh, maybe we can actually get a government that delivers for us first. Well, and, and these people who have been cosplaying and riding on the heels of that movement, I think, increasingly are showing themselves to be not real populists and not real free speech advocates, by the way, as we've talked again and again and again about how disappointing Elon Musk has been on Twitter in that regard, but people who are simply trying to capitalize on people's sincere concerns and their real sincere economic instability to make a buck. Well, I got, <laughs> I got news for the populist movement. I've said this before. I'll say it again. The factories are not coming back. We're not willing to have the regulatory environment that would facilitate that happening. Who's we are not willing to have that regulatory environment? Um, I don't know. The Democratic Party? Governments? Yeah, that's <laughs> the critique. The critique is that we have Two we wings of the same neoliberal bird. Protections. No, no, no. Let me tell you. Talk, you went. You gave a monologue on the subject. Let me get a word in here. Um, we have uh, we have a regulatory climate that is hostile to business, free enterprise, and markets, and that is what is killing our economy. It is bipartisan in that both political figures of both parties do it and have been unable to grapple with the enormous administrative state, the enormous cost of doing business in this country, which is absolutely killing us. We can't if, if, it, if it is cheaper to make food and goods and technology elsewhere, we should do that. That's good for e our economy. If you want to build, if it's cost effective to build the factories here, that's great. Or or elsewhere, it doesn't have to be in China. The issue, but we have, but, but the government makes it impossible to do that's, that. That's just factually wrong, Robbie. No, it's, it's the, co the question true. isn't whether it's cost effective to do it. It's if it's the most profitable for the shareholders of these companies. The the question is whether or not you want it to max if you maximize profit under capitalism. That is what we want. No, if you no, it's not. It's, it's literally not. What we want. If you are a member of a community where you the pro, you're still profiting, you don't want to end the jobs that are creating your keeping your community. We don't want to, the government ends those jobs by making it impossible no, for the factory to continue true. business there. Robbie, the reason these jobs went overseas was for corporate profits, not because, because these profits. Because they raised. They no, made it in, because they that's made. That's not true, Robbie. You can't require people to do business somewhere 
if some, in some other countries they say, here, you can do business the here, thing is, they're going to move. You can. You can structure our laws to prevent outshoring. You can have employee-owned businesses yeah, where instead that is of— socialism, wait a minute, and that is being rejected yes, over and over it's again. It's literally socialism, and that is why okay, so that many good people— to you. The government comes in, so tells you how to do your business, how much you can charge people, what the what the policies will be, the government micromanages it, and then we'll have a great economic success. Why, if that sounds good to you, Bernie Sanders and Democrats like that are the right choice for you. Bernie if Sanders you correctly is not a, reject that as killing of our economy. Here's a lesson 101 that should have been learned a long time ago. Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. He's an independent senator from Vermont. Second of all, the whole point of the appeal, as I'm arguing here, of Bernie Sanders is that he rejected the neoliberalism of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, who embraced the policies that Robbie is advocating for right now, which said that it's more important for a billionaire shareholder to get a fraction of a cent more of profit on a dollar than to keep a business in America. Yes, it costs more to keep the business in America. That is why they send them overseas. But the question you should be asking is whether or not the business can still be profitable and have have other downstream benefits, like keeping these industrial towns alive, not having the crisis of the opioid crisis being a scourge on our public, realizing that there are things that should be prioritized that the business people used to understand back in an early part of the, uh, the golden era, um, the gilded age, through uh, the mid part of the last century, that pure shareholder profit cannot be the only thing that's driving business decisions. And that is why so many people embrace the idea of employee ownership. If a group of employees decide that they personally would benefit from shipping a job overseas and they personally would get those profits, then they can make that kind of decision democratically if we have employee-owned businesses. However, if they have no agency there and it is just You're rich, trying to strip them of agency. You're saying the government should have all the agency. What, what does a, a factory worker in Michigan have in terms of agency when some billionaire decides to move the, sh the factory to China? Or when the government raises the regulatory cost of keeping the factory there. It's the government problem. All right. Butt out. Leave people to coordinate their economic right. activity you know, you've been results clear, in Robbie. unprecedented you, flourishing you, over the you, you it, it's how every country pulls itself you, out of poverty you, you micromanage the economy <laughs> by government bureaucracies you get I, crippled I in poverty people, we run the experiment I, over and over again and it's proven every time I just respect every time I, I think it's proven that America does coups and does wars across the world because it's so threatened by socialism it can't let people actually compete in the global marketplace and that is exactly why we're in a war in Ukraine that's why we've been in a, a cold war with Russia for the, the for almost a hundred years and that's why we we are defending a useless military outpost. Okay, let's take a let's take a let's right take a now. let's take a landmass. Let's split it in half. Let's have half of it have markets and trade and global engagement with the West. And, and the other, let me finish. And the other half do uh, do socialist micromanaging of the economy, and okay. we'll see who prevails. Oh, we've done that. It's Korea. That is so. See, see what you that like is better. So see where you'd rather live. Absurd. This is an argument for employee ownership and not shipping jobs overseas. If you're a Trump person who thought it was a good thing to not vote for NAFTA-style policies to ship jobs overseas, I hate to break it to you, but you actually agree with me, and you don't agree with this policy that says it's a bottom a race to the bottom, and everyone, all you poor working-class people who literally built this country, who are from Michigan, cities like Detroit that you are from, they deserve their lot because at the end of the day, some billionaire deserves. I did to buy not a new say yacht. they deserve their lot. I said the government screwed them. The government screwed them. Oh, they should be. They, they would be better off with their arms missing because there's no OSHA protections, and they, we could have child labor and all of those factories. Right. That's that's the that's the libertarian world that we could all be uh, flourishing in right now. Right.
That does it for us for today. And with a spicy debate, we haven't had one of those in a while. Tomorrow on Rising, we will be nice and warm and at home, while Amber Duke and Jessica Burbank will brave the cold to deliver um, all of these spicy hot takes straight to your feed. You don't want to miss it. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care.